Chuck Swindoll says that the steel of a person's character is forged on the anvil of one's times. And often, the darker the times are, the brighter the soul that stands against them that shines. We only have to look back in history and think of people such as Abraham Lincoln, who led our country through the darkness of the Civil War. Those like Winston Churchill, who led England and others in the world uh, against the, the deep night of Nazism. And Corey Ten Boom, who showed generations how to scatter the blackness of hate with God's love. These were bright lights in decadent times, brilliant stars that were cast against a darkened sky. And the times in which we live are dark times as well. This is why we're going to be looking today in our Bible at 1 Kings chapter 17. As we look at 1 Kings chapter 17, what we'll see is there were few skies that were darker in Israel's history than the time in which Elijah flung his faith as he stood out as that light in the darkness. And as I said, we live in dark days as well. And I want us to look over the next couple of weeks at this man named Elijah, a prophet from the Old Testament, to see how he stood as a light in the darkness so that we can be encouraged as believers in our day as well as to see ways that we can shine our light in the darkness. Elijah is an interesting man. He's like a meteorite. He appears suddenly on the pages of Scripture here in 1 Kings 17, and as we'll see in the weeks ahead, he's going to disappear as quickly as one day he's taken up in a chariot of fire to heaven. Uh, Elijah, other than Enoch, is the only man that we see in Scripture who was taken up to heaven without physically dying. Elijah was like Moses in that he appeared on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus Christ in all of his glory. And as we look at this man, Elijah, he's... He's only in a few chapters here, as we're going to see in the next few weeks, and yet he's found all throughout the pages of the Bible. The prophet Malachi wrote these words a hundred years after Elijah had walked the earth. In Malachi 4, 5, we're told, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah, the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Now remember, he had already been, so what was he referring to, Malachi? Well, Malachi was referring to one called John the Baptist who would come. 400 years after Malachi's words, the angel Gabriel appeared and he said of John the Baptist in Luke 1.17, and he will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. As John ministered in the wilderness, people asked him, are you Elijah? Some said even if Jesus Christ, uh, like in Matthew 6.15, he is Elijah. So who is this man Elijah? What is it that we find about him in the scriptures? Well, here in 1 Kings chapter 17, or I want us to read, camping out just on this first verse, 1 Kings 17.1, it says, Now Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, surely there shall be neither dew nor rain in heaven for these years except by my word. Now, that's it. That's our introduction to Elijah. Unlike many of the prophets or spokesmen uh, of the old, we don't have a buildup to his coming. We're not presented his credentials here. Here he simply shows up. He walks into the palace, and he says, there's not going to be any more rain until I say so. 
Now, to understand why he says this, we have to go back to what Moses said in Deuteronomy chapter 11. In Deuteronomy, as God was giving the law to his people, he said there are going to be blessings for obedience and there will be curses for disobedience. And as he was focusing on the curses for disobedience, one of those that he gave in Deuteronomy 11, 16, and 17 tells us this. Beware lest your hearts be deceived and you turn away and serve other gods and worship them. Or the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain. And the ground will not yield its fruit, and you will perish quickly from the good land which the Lord is giving to you. So see, as he's giving the the land and the law to the people, he says there are consequences for disobedience. And, And one of those that he mentions for their ongoing sin would be that he would withhold rain. And as we look at this, this part of the history of Israel, as I've already said, they were dark times. Sin was rampant in, in the land. And it didn't just start at the time where we're looking. It started all the way back with King Solomon. Now, King Solomon was a good king. He was, he was a follower of God. He asked for God's wisdom. And yet near the end of his reign, he began to compromise. He began to uh, step away from following God with his whole heart. He began to marry pagan women And as he did so, they were bringing pagan gods and the worship of these false gods into Israel. And it was a cancer that didn't stay contained. It spread to the people. Now, when Solomon died, uh, his son Rehoboam took over the throne. And if you know your history, you know that when Rehoboam was appointed king over the 12 tribes, the people came to him and they said, look, your dad was great, but the tax burden was heavy. The forced labor was intense. We need you to lighten the load a little. And and Rehoboam talked to his buddies, he talked to the godly counselor Solomon had put up, and the godly counselor said, yeah, the people are asking for the right thing, lessen the load. But his his buddies, his young men said, oh, make it harder, tell them you're the the man, you know. And so he came back and he said, it's going to be even harder, it's going to be more oppressive. And the result is the nation split. This is where the ten tribes, the northern tribes, became what we know as the kingdom of Israel. And the southern tribes stayed with Jeroboam and uh, with Rehoboam, and they became uh, what we call Judah, the southern kingdom of Judah. Now, the, the king who was placed over the ten northern tribes after the split was a guy named Jeroboam. And, and you have these two now nations, uh, Judah and Israel, and they both had a number of kings over their history. And unfortunately, many of them were, were wicked and evil and bad kings. There were good ones in there. But there were more bad than good kings. And I just want to walk you through the history of the northern tribe of Israel because that's who Elijah is coming to. He walks into the palace where Ahab is over the northern kingdom of Israel. As I said, Jeroboam was the guy who took over for the north. And 1 Kings 13.33 tells us, Jeroboam did, did not return from his evil ways, but again he made priests in high places. The high places are where these pagan gods are worshipped. So it says he made priests of the high places from among all the people. Any who would be ordained is to be priests of the high places. And, and this event became sin in the house of, of Jeroboam, even uh, to, it says, even to blot out and destroy it from the face of the earth. Now Jeroboam dies, his son Nadab comes in and takes over. And he takes the people even deeper into idolatry. First Kings fifteen twenty six says, And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, and he walked in the way of his father, and in his sin which he made Israel sin. Now Nadab is only on the throne for two years. He he is now murdered by a guy named Basha. 
And 1 Kings 15, 34 says of Basha, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of Jeroboam and in his sin in which he made Israel sin. Now, Basha had a son named Ella, and he also led the people into idolatry, and he suffers the same fate, getting murdered after two years. You like the soap opera going on here? And then it says Zimri comes in and he kills Ella. Now, he not only kills this new king, but he goes back and he wipes out the whole line of the previous king, Basha, as well. He's wiping out all the contenders. And this is 1 Kings 16, 12 through 13 says, is is a fulfillment of God's judgment on these past kings and the wickedness that they brought into Israel. Now, Zimri, the guy who wipes out two full lines, he only lasts a week. He has seven days on the throne. When a guy named Omri comes in, he surrounds the city. Zimri knows what's coming, so he commits suicide. He just takes himself out. Now, without all these contenders around, Omri gets 12 years on the throne. So the quick succession of kings has stopped. But unfortunately, the sins of Israel has not. Because 1 Kings 16.25 tells us Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord and acted more wickedly than all who were before him. Now, that's saying a lot. So for more than half a century, the people led by their leaders are going deeper and deeper and deeper into idolatry, walking away from the true God, Jehovah, Yahweh. And they're following after these pagan gods. And just when it looked like things could not get any worse, along comes Ahab and Jezebel, the people we're reading about here in 1 Kings 17.1. And what it says about them in 1 Kings 16.30-33 is this. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And it came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. And he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, the king of the Sidonians. And he went on to serve Baal and worshipped him. So he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab also made the Asherah. These were high, long poles that were set up in these high places where people would... So you've got all these various pagan gods being worshipped. And it says, Thus Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, than all the kings of Israel who were before him. That's a lot. So do you get the, the picture of how wicked times are as this guy walks in? You've got Ahab and Jezebel who were not content just to bring in competing pagan religions, but they say, we want to completely wipe off the worship of the true God, Yahweh. Jezebel goes out and begins killing all the priests and the prophets of Israel. If it wasn't for a guy named Obadiah, who God had hide a hundred of the prophets of the true God in a cave, they would have been completely wiped out. So this is the background in 2 Kings 17.1. When Elijah walks into the palace... now. He's already hated because do you know what the name Elijah means? Yahweh is God. So here you've got this lady who says, I'm going to kill everybody who stands for God. And he comes out of hiding and he walks right into the palace and he says, hey, Yahweh's God. Yahweh's my God just by his name. And so he's the guy who gets to stand before this wicked king and queen and say, you're in sin. And you're going to find out who the true God is. It's not Baal. It's Yahweh. And to prove Yahweh is God, he's going to withhold the rain from the earth. Now, how many of you want to line up for that assignment? I don't see a lot of hands going up. 
If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, let me tell you something. That's your assignment. That's my assignment. Because God has called on us to be lights in the darkness. He's called on us to be his people who go into these, these dark times and shine the light of the truth of who God is. And this is what Elijah was doing, and it's what we're called to do. We live in a time that has been called a, pro, a post-Christian society. Now, what does that mean to be in a post-Christian society? David Roper offers this definition. He says that doesn't mean that there are no longer many Christians around. In fact, he says there are probably more true believers in our day than ever before. And he says what it means is not that there are not believers, but it's that in post-Christian society, it means the Christian faith no longer plays a role in shaping public opinion and policy. It means our faith, our values, God's word is no longer what drives the culture of our day. Would you say that's true? I mean, all you have to do is look at things like abortion. Let me, let me tell you what society said about abortion about 100 years ago. Have you ever heard of the American Medical Association? It's, it's this group of doctors, and they're kind of the driving board. And back in 1859, the American Medical Association defined abortion this way. It is the slaughter of countless children, no mere misdemeanor, no attempt on the life of the mother, but the wanton and murderous destruction of her child, such unwarranted destruction of human life. In 1870... The American Medical Association defined the doctors who perform abortion this way. Men who cling to an honorable profession only to dishonor it. False brethren, uneducated assassins, these modern Herods, these men who will corrupt, who with corrupt hearts and blood-stained hands destroy what they cannot reinstate. Corrupt souls destroy the fairest fabric that God has ever created under the cloak of the medical profession, monsters of iniquity. Boy, that sets off the politically correct police, doesn't it? Let's fast forward to 1967. The American Medical Association moved to define abortion as the interruption of an unwanted pregnancy. By 1970, abortion was simply called a medical procedure. And in our day, we call it choice in women's health care. Has the needle moved? Has there been compromise over 100 years in our society? It's not just in this area. What about education? Have you seen what's happening in the public schools, in the universities, in colleges? What's happened to education in our country? It's also been on this slippery slope of decline, and it's not an accident. It's been a concerted, designed effort to overturn Christian values in our society. Uh, In January 1983, the Humanist magazine had an article written by a guy named John Dumphy, and this is what he wrote. I am convinced that the battle for humankind's future must be waged and won in the public school classroom by teachers who correctly perceive their role as a proselytizer of a new faith, a religion of humanity. The classroom must and will become an arena of conflict between the old and the new, the rotting corpse of Christianity, together with all its adjacent evils and misery, and the new faith of humanism. 
Go two years further, Dr. John Goodland, who was head of the National Education Association, a large teachers' union, wrote an article in 1985 entitled Schooling for the Future, and this is what he said. Our goal is behavioral change. The majority of our youth still hold to the values of their parents. And if we do not recognize this pattern, if we do not re-socialize them to accept change, our society may decay. Did you know that was happening? You've seen it, but you didn't know that there was a concerted takeover, not only of the classrooms and curriculum, but of this, this battle, as they've said, to wipe out the rotting course corpse of Christianity, because if they don't get rid of Christian values in our society, they say society's going to decay. Well, our society has decayed, hasn't it? But it's not because of Christianity. It's because Christianity has been removed in terms of societal influence. You, you look at what's happening. The Bible says we are light in the darkness. It says we are to be salt, which is a preserving element in society. And, and people today are starting to see the results of this removal of Christian values. Have you ever heard of the Washington Post? That's a nice conservative Christian newspaper, isn't it? It's a very liberal, secular paper. And, and this is what they have said. Ten years ago, they said, we have reached a state where common decency is no longer common. Yeah, that's what happens when you remove light and salt. There is a decay, but it's not because of Christianity. In fact, what we're doing is seeing how the words of Jeremiah 6.15 apply to our times. Jeremiah was an Old Testament prophet, and he said, were they ashamed because of the abomination they have done? He says they were not ashamed at all. He says they don't even know how to blush. Friends, do we know how to blush anymore? When you... Hear the language of our day when you see the stuff in, in modern media that used to be the pornography of the past played during the family hour on TV. Do we look at that and say, this, this is not acceptable? Or, or have we forgotten how to blush? When, when we see what's happening in the world around us, it's the words of Isaiah 5.20. Isaiah 5.20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness. You know, as that great theologian and philosopher Yogi Berra once said, it's deja vu all over again. The times that we're reading about in 1 Kings are the times in which we live. So what are we to do? Are we to withdraw? Are we to wave the flag of surrender? Are we to huddle up in little groups of believers and, and, and hope that the rapture comes and removes us from the decadence of society? No. We're to do what Elijah did. We're to be everyday Elijahs. We're to be men and women who are called to go into the darkness to shine the light of who God is and what his word says. We're to be that preserving element, the salt and light in the world in which we live. Now, the problem is, Chuck Swindoll says, so few of us stand as Elijah did. We've learned consciously or unconsciously the way of the chameleon. We blend ourselves into the scenery of our time. Others, uh, often our tolerance and long-suffering border on compromise, making us ineffective as Christ's lights in a dark world. Now, it may be that you're sitting here this morning saying, Roger, I want to be an Elijah. I, I, I want to make a difference. But, but I'm just a person. The good news is, so was Elijah. 
As you read the New Testament book of James, he says in James 5.17, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Elijah was just like us. He was a human being who was fallible, who had a sin nature, who made mistakes. He was a guy who had limitations. He suffered from fatigue. In the weeks ahead, we're going to see where he was, he was depressed. He wanted to die. He was tired. Elijah was a man just like us. So what is it that made him so effective? What is it that made this guy be able to be light in the darkness, salt in a decaying world? Well, James 5, 16 through 18 tells us this. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain. And it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. It says Elijah was a man of prayer. If you were here the last two weeks as we finished the book of Ephesians, as we looked at the armor of God, as we talked about the weapons that God has given us to fight our foe, Satan, and the world in which we live, do you remember what it said about prayer? Prayer is what God has given to us. Prayer is, is the thing that we plug into to, to bring God's power into the process. He's given us his presence within us. Prayer. That's what made Elijah who he was. This is what gave him the ability to stand before Ahab, where we read here in 1 Kings 17.1. Now Elijah the Tishbite, who was a settler of Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand. Do you see that? Before whom I stand, it's the Lord. Do you see that word in all capital letters in your Bible or on your phone? Lord. Whenever you see L-O-R-D in all capital letters, that tells you that's the tetragrammaton, the holiest name of God, the high covenant name, Yahweh, Jehovah. And what, what Elijah says is, because I stand before the Lord. Jews would stand in that day when they prayed. He says, because I've come into the presence of God, as I've lingered in his presence, as I've marinated in it, as, as I've seen his power, as I've read his word, as I've, as I've been saturated with who God is, as I've been in solitude and in prayer, he says, I realize how big God is and how little the problems in the people of this world are. It's why he could, he could stand before uh, a, this earthly king and queen that everybody was shaking in fear in front of. And friends, that's what God is calling on us to do in our day. He calls on us to stand in his presence, to be people in his word, to be people who talk to him, people who are filled up so when we face the world around us, we're, we're not afraid. It, it, remember his name is Elijah. Where did he get his name? His parents. And what that tells us is he had followers, a father and a mother who were followers of the true God. You as parents, you who are grandparents here today, you have an impact on the next generation and beyond by your influence in the home. Even if you're not somebody who has kids of your own, you have the ability to impact the generations that are to come and the people in our day by being a godly mentor, to come alongside and encourage and strengthen your friends to, to be a mentor to those who are, who are new in their faith or, or coming up who are younger in years. God calls on us to be those who are impacting others. As you think about this guy, Elijah, who had, who had parents who named him Elijah, which means Yahweh is God. Yahweh is my God. You, you see the contrast of ungodly parents because do you remember what we saw about Jezebel? 
It told us her father was named Ethbaal. You know what that name means? You ever seen one of those T-shirts that say, I'm with stupid? Well, that, that's the T-shirt. I'm with Baal. I'm with stupid. That's what the T-shirt her father wore. His name literally meant, I'm with Baal. So you have a, 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 this girl growing up in a home where she's learning to hate Jehovah. She's learning to worship a false god. And you have Elijah who's growing up in a home with godly parents who say, we're followers of the true God. She learned to hate the true God at home. She, she began her worship of this false god under the influence of her dad who said, I'm with Baal. As you think about your own home this morning, what are people learning who live with you? Whether it's as a, a parent with children or a roommate with, with others, what, what are people learning from you at home? Does your shirt say, I'm with the Lord, the true God? Or is it saying, hey, eat, live, and drink for tomorrow we die or some other T-shirt? What are you wearing? What's the influence that you have with those who are around you? Are people learning to love the Lord? Are they getting the foundation they need to be able to stand against the attacks on their faith that are going to happen at school, at work, or as they just walk around in society? We see that Elijah, in 1 Kings 17, 1, it says he was a Tishbite who was from the settlers of Gilead. What that tells us is he was from the little town of Tishbe, which was a little dot on the map out in a, a rural wilderness area east of the Jordan. It was a harsh, desolate area with rocky valleys, austere mountains. It was open, wild country that had solitary places, the desert sun beat down. Elijah was a guy who grew up walking the wadis, these, these dry stream beds, exploring the wilderness. He was a farm boy from a very desolate, outlying area. And we see that his environment's reflected in who he is. He's, he's this rugged guy who walks into the palace. He doesn't bow and scrape before the king and queen. He just walks right in and says, hey, my name's Elijah. Jehovah is my God, and there's going to be no rain. Drops the mic and walks out. <laughs> and, and, and this is what we see. Now, why does he say there's going to be no rain? There could have been a hundred consequences he could have named. Do you know why he said there's no rain? What do you know about Baal? Baal was called the god of fertility. He was supposed to be the guy who controlled the rain. So if you wanted to hit your enemy between the eyes, if you wanted to say, I'm going to give you home court advantage, I'm going to, I'm going to battle your god on his turf, that's why Jehovah says, hey, let's say there's going to be no rain because that's supposedly what Baal controls. So he walks right in, and what Elijah is saying is, your God is bogus, and your God is dead. Now, that's a good way to become dead yourself when you're looking at Jezebel, who's killing everybody, right? But again, remember, he wasn't afraid. You know why he wasn't afraid? Because he says, you're just a mere earthly king and queen. I've stood in the presence of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I, I go before the true God. You want to know what true awesomeness is? I've lingered in his presence. He's the Lord. So he says, I'm not afraid of you. And the problem for some of us today is we're afraid of what we face in the world around us because we're not sitting in the presence of the Lord. We're not in his word. We're not filling up uh, on who he is. We're not being taught the truths of his word. We're not spending time in presence with God and having that deep and abiding relationship the scripture calls us to. 
And so we face these trials in the society in which we live and we're scared because we're not, we're not overwhelmed by who our true God is. So Elijah walks in and with a few well-placed words, he says, your God is bogus. He says, there's going to be no rain. And he walks out. Now, if you're sitting here this morning saying, you know, Roger, I, I, I heard that you're telling me I'm just like Elijah. But, you know, I'm a nobody from nowhere. Where was Elijah from? Who was he? He was a nobody from nowhere. A guy who grew up in a rural, desolate area. His power came from being in the presence of God. His power came from being in God's word where he was reminded who God is and who I am. Do you know who you are? If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, 1 John 4, 4 tells you this. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Who is it that lives in us? It's the Holy Spirit. Greater is he that is in you, God himself, the Holy Spirit, than he that is in the world, our enemy called Satan, as we saw in the book of Ephesians. We don't have to fear our foe. We don't have to worry about who he is. Yeah, we respect him as a powerful enemy, but God says, I've overcome him. He's lost. If he wants to remind you of your past and how you're a sinner, remind him of his future and say, hey, buddy, you lost at the cross. Jesus defeated sin, death, and you. You are, from ch- you are from God, little children. You've overcome them because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. So as you look at what you're facing in the world, you may think of yourself as one little person from the pasture land, but don't forget that's who Elijah was. And because he had stood in the presence of God, he didn't fear standing in the palace, where he says, you will see God for who he is, the Lord, the God of Israel who lives. God needed one man in that day, to come into the presence of the wicked king and queen. Friends, God needs one man, one woman, one boy, one girl to go into the places he has put you. You may not go into the palace, but you're going to go into your places of business. You're going to go into your schools or the the halls of the hospital where you work. You're going to be out on the streets and, and run into people, and God needs one person in those places to be his light in the darkness? Are you willing to be that man or woman in our day, to be an everyday Elijah? Now, maybe you're still feeling inadequate. Maybe you haven't heard anything I've said. So let me tell you some other things we find in the Bible. If you're feeling inferior, if you're feeling inadequate, you're in good company. Have you ever heard of a guy by the name of Moses? Moses said this in Exodus 3.11. He says, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? Or that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt. He goes on and says in Exodus 4.10, Then Moses said to the Lord, Please, Lord, I've never been eloquent, neither recently nor in time past nor since. Thou hast spoken to thy servant, for I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. He says, God, get somebody better. I can't do this. Did God use Moses? Yeah. He delivered the people of Israel. He led them out of captivity with Pharaoh. He gave them Aaron to go with them. He hasn't left us alone. He's, look around you, friends. You have, you have other believers. The reason we gather on a Sunday is so you know you're not alone. 
The scriptures say, why do you forsake fellowshipping together as is the habit of some? He says we're to come together all the more to encourage one another as we see the, the day drawing near the wickedness in the time in which we live. You're not alone. The, do you, have you ever heard of a guy by the name of Gideon? Gideon is found in the book of Judges in chapter 6. He was the guy that delivered the people with what? Torches and jars, no weapons. And, and Gideon, this mighty warrior, you know where he was when God called him? He was hiding in a wine press. He, he was in a depression, beating out a little bit of grain, hoping to get enough food. And all of a sudden, God shows up and says, hey, mighty warrior. And he goes, <laughs> Judges 6.15, oh, Lord, how shall I deliver Israel? Behold, my family is the least in Manasseh, and I am the youngest of my father's house. But the Lord said to him, surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat Midian as one man. What about the woman at the well in John chapter 4? The woman was, as, as you read the Bible, and, and she shows up at the well at the time she did. She, you know why she was there in the, the hot sun of the afternoon? It's because everybody else came in the, the morning and night to draw water, but she was damaged goods. She was somebody, the city said, oh, that, that lady, what's she doing around? So she went when nobody else would be there. Uh, John 4 tells us uh, about the woman at the well, and it says, uh, Jesus said to her that you have five husbands and the woman with whom you now have is not your husband. Did God turn his back on her? Did he, did he say, you know, I have no hope for you. you. You can't be used. No, he talked to her. He encouraged her. She came to understand who he was. And John 4.39 says, And from that city, many of the Samaritans believed in Christ because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all the things I have done. She was damaged goods, thrown away by society, and God used her to bring her city to faith. Still feeling inadequate? 1 Corinthians one twenty six through 31 tells us this. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not that he might nullify the things that are. That no man should boast before God. But by his doing you are in Christ Jesus. Who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That just as it is written... Let them who boast, boast in the Lord. Second Corinthians 3, 5 goes on to say, Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. James five seventeen says, Elijah was a man just like us. The question this morning is, are we willing to be like Elijah? Are we willing to be men and women who are used by God to shine light into the darkness in the world in which we live? If you're still feeling inadequate, if you're still feeling ill-equipped, God has given us everything we need from the armor of God in Ephesians 6 to his word, which we see in Isaiah 55, 11, that says, it will not return to me void without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. The Bible, the scriptures say, is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. God says, I have given you what you need. The question is, are you in it? Are you learning about me? Are you learning what I want you to share? 
God has given us not only his word, but he's given us his presence. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, And do you not know that your body is a temple of the Lord, and the Spirit of God dwells within you? Do you remember 1 John 4.4? Little children, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. He's given us his very power and presence. We have the promise of God that he's with us. He says in Matthew 28.20, And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You're not alone. And we have the power of prayer, which James 5.16 says, the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. God has called us to be everyday Elijahs, men and women, boys and girls who stand as lights in the darkness. We're going to go to the Lord in prayer after we come to the communion table. So I want to wait to pray, but now we're going to come to the communion table. And as we come to the communion table, what we're reminded of is God's great love for us. That God demonstrated his own love toward us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If you're feeling that you can't be used by God because you've made a mess of your life, this table is the answer for that. This table tells you that God loved you just like you were. While you were in rebellion, while you were an enemy, while you were far from God. But he doesn't want to leave us like we were. He says, come to me. Come to faith. Come and understand who I am and what I've done for you. This table represents the payment for our sins. We owe a penalty of death. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 6.23 tells us. And so as we come to this table this morning, if you're here and you've never come to faith in Jesus Christ, if you're somebody who says, Roger, I've been, I've been trying to do it on my own. I've been trying to find my adequacy in who I am. I've been trying to work my way to God. You can't do it that way. Because we're a man just like Elijah with a sin nature and we've made mistakes and we've fallen and we owe a penalty of death. But Jesus came and he paid that penalty for us. He went to the cross and he died in our place. And so that's what we remember today. In a moment as the elements are passed, I want you to take the bread and the cup. If you're ready to say, Jesus, I believe you're who you said you are, the Son of God, the one who died for me, and I'm turning from my sin today to you as my Savior. And if you're ready to do that, then take those elements and say, God, today I'm coming home. I'm coming into your family, accepting by faith your death in my place. And for the rest of us who have already done that, what God says to us is he wants us to confess our sins, to come with clean hands and hearts. First John 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So I want you to take this time to think about who the Lord is and what he's done for you and to make yourself ready to receive these elements as we celebrate what God did to save us. Take and hold these. We'll take them together in a moment. You don't have to be a part of Wayside as your regular church. You just have to be a part of the family of God. So we welcome all believers to this table. Will you serve us, please? As we read in Luke, it said that there would be one who would come in the spirit and power of Elijah. Malachi was pointing to the one who would be the prophet, the messenger, to say the Messiah has come. And I was speaking of John the Baptist. And as John the Baptist was there baptizing, you'll recall that he saw Jesus Christ coming out in the wilderness one day. 
And he pointed to Christ and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He was telling the people the Messiah has come, the promised one, the fulfillment of all the prophets, all the prophecies, the one who would come to take our place to pay that penalty of death, the one who would remove the stain of sin. Here he is. Behold Jesus Christ, the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Eat this in remembrance of him. The book of Hebrews tells us that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. And all throughout Israel's history, they would go and they would offer sacrifices, attempting to to pay for their sins. But uh, the scriptures tells us in Hebrews that the blood of bulls and goats and the sacrifices that were made, they could not remove that sin, that penalty. But when Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world came. He did. And as he shed his blood on the cross, as he paid our penalty, the scriptures tell us, he said, it is finished in John 19.30, literally paid in full. He said, your sins are gone. As believers who have come to faith, you've, you've taken my righteousness and it's been put on you. It's been used as a robe to wash away the past and the, the sins. This is what this represents, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Drink it in remembrance of him. Will you join me, please, as we go to the Lord in prayer? Lord God, we thank you for your great gift of love, the love of your Son as he gave his very life to give us the gift of eternal life. Lord Jesus, it's because of what you did that we are declared righteous. It's because of what you did that we've been welcomed into the family of God. And Lord God, it's because of who you are that you uh, give us what we need to face the world in which we live. Yes, Lord, there is a dark and decadent time in which we live. There is evil and there is a turning of, of people's backs in a collective nature as we've turned away from you. Lord, is a as a nation that used to follow you, America, as well as so many other countries in the world have turned from you. And we thank you, Lord God, that you continue to call us out of the darkness through light. Lights like us, Father, we are your messengers. We are your message to this day and age. We are your people raised up to be Elijah's. So, Father, would we be courageous men and women, boys and girls, Would we be those who are willing to go into the palaces or our places of business or the halls of our schools or our our hospitals or of the, the bases in which we serve? Father, would you use us as your lights in the darkness? Father, make us courageous men and women, those who know we don't have to fear the world or those in it because we've stood in your presence. We know who you are and we know you live within us. We know you've equipped us for the enemy. You've given us what we need. So, Father, as Dr. Hendricks once said, make us your suit of clothes. Put us on and walk around in us. Would we be your mouthpieces? Would we be those who are used by you to declare the good news that the God of Israel, the Lord God Jehovah Yahweh, lives, and his son Jesus Christ has conquered sin and death and overcome the grave? May we share that good news of grace with the world around us. We pray these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.